This all, I'm not going to lie, sounds very complicated. It's time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast that helps you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and organization for maximum DevOps awesomeness. I'm Bridget Crumhout with a great show for you today, but first, a word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by CircleCI. Designed for modern software teams, CircleCI's continuous integration and delivery platform helps developers push code with confidence. Trusted by thousands of companies, from four-person startups to Fortune 500 businesses, CircleCI helps teams take their software from idea to delivery quickly, safely, and at scale. Visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash CircleCI to learn why high-performing DevOps teams use CircleCI to automate and accelerate their CI-CD pipelines. BridgeCrew is the all-in-one cloud security platform for developers. They automate and embed security throughout the entire development lifecycle, so you can streamline your DevSecOps toolchain into one solution. By integrating infrastructure's code, security, and compliance into your version control systems and CI/CD pipelines, BridgeCrew empowers you to find, fix, and prevent cloud misconfigs faster. Get started with BridgeCrew for free at arresteddevops.com slash bridgecrew. This episode is brought to you by Mac Stadium, leading provider of cloud solutions built on Apple Mac hardware. As more teams are working from home, having your Mac build infrastructure in the cloud can make it easy for your app devs to work more efficiently. No need to have someone in the office keeping an eye on the Macs. Let Mac Stadium do it for you. And if you need a fast, scalable, modern way to run Mac virtual machines, Mac Stadium's virtualization platform, Orca, is purpose-built for running iOS and macOS CI. Orca takes a standard macOS VM, puts it inside a Docker container, and then uses Kubernetes to orchestrate everything, all on Mac hardware. Orca is easy to integrate into your current workflow with plugins for all the popular CI tools, like Jenkins, GitHub, GitLab, and BuildKite. If you're building apps for the Apple ecosystem, learn more about Mac Stadium at macstadium.com slash devops. From that link, you can also get access to a free two-hour sandbox to give Orca a try. We've talked before on this podcast about Kubernetes and Service Mesh, but we can get more complicated than that to talk about this exciting topic of multi-cluster Service Mesh, comma, what even is. Uh, we have two guests. And I'm going to ask each of them to tell us a bit about yourself, like where you live, what you work on, what surprised you the most when you started looking at multi-cluster service mesh, starting with Philip. Hello, everyone. My name is Phil Gibson. I'm a uh, PM here at Microsoft. I'm focused on our cloud-native uh, security projects, uh, OSM, Open Service Mesh being one of them. Uh, and I, I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm originally from Chicago, so go Bears. Uh, and I've been uh, collectively with Microsoft for uh, about 13 years or coming up to 13 years. All right. So uh, incorrect NFC North opinions aside, go pet go. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I'm bad. really... <laughs> I'm really excited to have Philip here giving us his insights because 
he spent a lot of time looking at how specifically how end users use things in this space, which ends up being key. For those of us who work at vendors, it's like, hey, it's awesome that you want to develop some software, but how is it going to get used? And I, that is actually that specific uh, topic is why I'm also excited to introduce our second guest today. Uh, Annie, you're on the last week of summer internship with this team, um, being mentored by Phil. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about yourself, where you live, about school. What surprised you the most in this internship? I'm Annie. Um, I'm a PM intern um, on the team this summer working on multi-cluster. I am originally from the San Francisco Bay Area, um, but I'm a, a rising junior at UPenn and I'm studying computer science, the focus on cloud computing. Um, and yeah, I think the most interesting part of this internship for me was just getting to work um, with an open source community um, and seeing how being a product PM on um, an open source team is different from being one on a regular product team. For those who have listened to this podcast for a while, we've done a number of ADO episodes about Kubernetes, including one last summer uh, explaining Service Mesh with Michelle Neurley and Delian Rachev. So ArrestedDevOps.com slash Service Dash Mesh, you can go listen to that one if you want the intro. We're going to be at kind of a tool one level here today, uh, the exciting topic of multi-cluster Service Mesh. Uh, Phil, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toss it to you first and say... What does that even mean? And show your work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So multi-cluster, right? Uh, you know, I, I guess at a, at a high level, probably the most uh, accepted or uh, popular uh, description of a multi-cluster is a multi-cluster service mesh is uh, the ability to uh, be able to manage multiple uh, Kubernetes services uh, connected, uh, you know, in the east-west communication flow across multiple clusters, right? And as I'm saying that, that that probably sounds super convoluted, right? Um, but I think, you know, what we found, uh, in, in, and we'll probably get into this, just, you know, the discovery of, hey, you know, who, who needs a, a multi-cluster service mesh? It, it means a lot to a lot of different people, you know? And it's really kind of like trying to figure out what that true definition is and, and, and what problems we're trying to solve, uh, you know, for, for people trying to consume like a, a multi-cluster service mesh or service mesh in general. Right. So I'm, I'm a bit rambling right now. On this topic, <laughs> no, unfortunately. That's great because I think that's, you hit upon what I think is a really important point that being what are people trying to do and you also right. mentioned something that I'm gonna I'm gonna toss to Annie and ask her to explain for our listeners who hear east west and think north south east west. Wait, what do those things mean in a cluster? Uh, Annie, do you want to kind of give us a little bit of insight into what exactly the directional stuff is? Yeah, so I'll first start off by uh, talking a little bit about um, what happened before multi multi cluster functionality. So what Phil talked about. Um, something called north-south traffic, um, where traditionally, if you have two clusters um, and you have pods inside one cluster with services, um, pods will have to exit that cluster to access the services of the other cluster, cluster B. Um, but then now with east-west traffic, um, we're enabling the ability for um, clusters to not have to, act, um, or pods not to um, exit that cluster to talk to those uh, the services so they can access um, 
the ingress of the other cluster um, without having to exit either cluster. So that opens up so many questions. Like, (laughs) do these clusters have the exact same security model? And how do pods know which stuff in the other cluster they should talk to? Like, how does that work? Typically, what we're talking about now is if if you're familiar with kind of how Kubernetes works and uh, this whole uh, notion of a control plane and then this data plane where a lot of the, the traffic is happening and the control plane is where the operators are uh, configuring, configuring uh, configurations and everything. Um, you know, being able to take one, uh, that control plane functionality, so how you're configuring your cluster, uh, extending that to a service mesh and then having that control plane uh, distributed across multiple uh, clusters as well. Uh, so, so that's kind of almost step one is making sure like you're able to, uh, control and do all your, you know, your credit operations, uh, for your mesh uh, across a distributed, uh, architecture there. You know, if one system goes down, you, you still have access to it. Uh, and then two, um, again, kind of what Annie was, uh, talking about the north, south, east, west, uh, communication. Now we have, essentially a, a, a method to where, you know, you have services in one cluster can communicate, you know, again, I guess we'll say horizontally across multiple clusters uh, without having to go through kind of like, or, or enter in through a normal like ingress. Um, wow. I just, <laughs> as I'm talking about this, like, it's like, how, how deep do we want to go? Right. Because <laughs> You got I ingress, mean, the traditional ingress controllers, which, you know, if you're familiar with Kubernetes, hey, that's how you kind of expose your service out to the world. Uh, but then with multi-cluster service mesh, uh, we now have a concept of a uh, an ingress uh, for the service mesh, right? So again, not going through those traditional uh, ingresses, but going through a, a more uh, east-west ingress where then we're populating routes and uh, and everything else. So when you say it's ingress, but it's different, and then you say east-west, my mind immediately goes to, gosh, coming in from the side, is this at all uh, as dangerous as side side channel attacks? Like, (laughs) exactly how do you connect these clusters that may have different security models? Like, in a multi-cluster scenario, do both clusters need to have all the same access to all the same everyone's, or is there a way to set any access more granularly? The cluster itself can be a security boundary. So you'll definitely be able to, within your cluster, have its own sort of RBAC controls or policy controls, et cetera. I guess, you know, we're using ingress as the the raw term, which means to kind of enter into, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And instead of, again, that traditional, what we all know of an ingress controller, you know, the popular ones out there, uh, which are exposing services to something that's coming into the cluster. Uh, same concept is just, you know, for the service mesh, we're saying, hey, we're going to have a incoming ingress on a additional cluster uh, that we're able to uh, populate routes through, have that configuration kind of sync through the control plane that's going across all these clusters so that service A that's in uh, cluster one uh, that when it needs to get to service uh, B and cluster two, uh, it knows that, hey, I actually take this route and that's going to end up touching this ingress that is strictly just related to uh, the service mesh. 
uh, and it gets routed out of the cluster that way. This all, I'm not going to lie, sounds very complicated. Um, <laughs> and it, I thought Kubernetes was hard. So I think, Annie, you have a great blog post you wrote um, talking about conceptually from a high level, some of the benefits of multi-cluster. And I think Phil hit on a few of those, but maybe you can kind of lay out for us, lay out for our listeners, why would someone want to do this stuff that sounds frankly kind of like a lot? What are, yeah. what are the wins? I think Phil um, talked a lot about um, east-west traffic and how that's different from what was traditionally done. Um, but some other benefits include um, before, um, a service mesh um, only runs on one Kubernetes cluster, um, so you're limited to the size and scale of that Kubernetes cluster. Um, but by in- enabling the ability to um, deploy services to multiple, um, you're allowing your applications to be scaled more horizontally as well. Um, and I think another big benefit is has to do with disaster recovery and failover. Um, so one aspect of that would be the ability to deploy multi- the same service to multiple clusters and that enables some sort of failover um, if something happens to a single cluster. Um, and something else that is also possible would be being the ability to redirect traffic um, away from unhealthy clusters. Um, and this helps minimize damage um, and make sure, makes sure that your workloads are still running. Um, okay, and- so wait, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause you right there because yeah. I'm hearing <laughs> things that we've heard before. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing, oh, load balancing. And I think, okay, load balancers, we're familiar with that. But is load balancing against entire, like, you know, a whole bunch of different clusters are behind your your conceptual load balancer? Or um, like canary deployments, blue-green, that sort of thing. We've heard that before. But now we're hearing instead of just, you know, pods or services or whatever, you've got entire clusters behind these. Is, is that the right framing? Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is um, if you have one unhealthy cluster, you're able to divert traffic away from that healthy, unhealthy cluster um, towards your healthy clusters. So, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, and that enables some sort of failover. Uh, hey, and then there was a, a little bit more, I think, that I, I interrupted you, but I was like, we got to get a little more clarity here. Um, <laughs> yeah. But what else do you got for us? Um, yeah, and I think the last um, impact is, um, could be zero downtime between Kubernetes upgrades. So um, if you have multiple clusters, clusters running services, um, then, and you need to upgrade some of those clusters, to different Kubernetes versions, um, you can ensure that your workloads continue running um, as you're updating your clusters um, by updating them one cluster at a time. That sounds great. But I have read the Kubernetes release notes a few times and quailed at all of the API deprecations and breaking changes and this, that, and the other. Uh, I, I'm going to look to you, Phil, and say, do we have any kind of um, gating or like, oh, okay, we're going to do a, a zero downtime um, cluster upgrade, but then these APIs work over here and these ones don't work over there. Like, how would a multi-cluster scenario handle differences between the clusters? Yeah, you're, you're getting into it now. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is the hard stuff, but yeah, I want to know, yeah, what are you thinking? Yeah, it's funny when we get to this level, because I think, you know, the value of what made Kubernetes so popular uh, from the start is it's offloaded just a lot of labor intensive, you know, configurations, you know, so we like, like we're talking about now, low balancing, scaling applications, um, automatically putting like runtimes on on distributed resources. Uh, And I think we, we kind of take for granted now you know, because we've just grown accustomed to like having this functionality, uh, 
is, is default, right? But but you know, it's it's doing a lot under the covers. Um yeah, so you know, when you're talking about a, a multi-cluster service mesh and, and specifically around APIs, you know, um within the mesh itself, uh, obviously there's there's controls and webhooks of things that that it's gonna reach out and, and, and do. Um, if you're talking about like your application, like if I'm exposing my application, it has certain paths and, and APIs. Um, you can also kind of blend that into your config as, as well. Uh, and, and, you know, those are things that we are currently working into uh, the, the service mesh uh, too, uh, because, you know, again, customers or users, uh, you know, the chemistry set is cool. Right. <laughs> but I think, you know, people really want something that's uh, simple and, and easy to implement. And so I know uh, in our journey and us discussing multi-cluster uh, inside of OSM is uh, really, hey, how do we keep this, uh, the experience super simplified so that we kind of shield you from kind of all of the, the heavy lifting that, that goes on? So um, there's still a lot to be imagined there. Uh, and, and and we're still kind of working on how best to uh, make that experience. Yeah, I think that um, Annie had some some stuff she wrote about the uh, philosophy. I would love to hear what's your take, Annie, on coming into this project and wanting to give people the experience of you know reducing the complexity, like uh, Phil mentions. And I think I talked about it briefly in my blog post, um, but we really wanted to align with sort of the OSM philosophy of making things really simple to use and to configure. Um, so our philosophy for multi-cluster is to sort of enable these complex, larger use cases um, while still maintaining a really simple and easy to use experience. But hey, you know, complexity is conserved. <laughs> so it's going yeah. somewhere, <laughs> apparently into a bunch of YAML or <laughs> is there still YAML here? Everything is YAML, right? Uh, there's YAML, there's config maps, there's uh, new CRDs, uh, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> you get all the everything. Um, so I want to switch gears for a minute here and say, now this was an exciting new experience for our team having an intern working with us on this. I think it was probably also kind of an interesting experience for Annie to come in and start working on this project. Um Annie, I want to I want to hear a little bit from the point of view of you weren't already steeped in the Kubernetes ecosystem and having service mesh opinions, TM, and all that. Uh, what did you think when you got this intern assignment? Like starting from what is a Kuber? What like what were you what were you thinking when you looked at this? Yeah, I was definitely very overwhelmed. Um, so many words like Kubernetes, service mesh, um, even things like. Um, yeah, simple things like OSS. Um, I had no idea what that mean that meant. Um, so yeah, I think uh, it was a very overwhelming experience to start, especially because in university, um, since Kubernetes is relatively new, you don't learn about stuff like that in school. Um, yeah, so I think the experience of, I think being an enterprise PM um, was interesting, um, working on sort of more technical projects um, because I, like you said, don't have a starting opinion on um, a lot of these. I personally am not a service mesh user. 
Um, so yeah, I think getting to talk to a lot of different um, people who use service mesh or people who have experience in service mesh um, was really interesting and valuable. Um, just hearing what they liked about it, what they didn't like about it, uh, things that they think that could be improved. Um, I think that was a really great um, opportunity to kind of increase my knowledge in service mesh um, and really valuable to my internship too. You touched upon that discussion. Of course, you're talking out there to people in the community and users, enterprise customers, et cetera. And I think Phil has spent a bunch of time kind of looking at this line between project and product. Uh, what would you say, Phil, is your approach for when you're figuring out this is something that needs to be a product offering? This is something that should be in the open source project. How do you approach that? Initially, I, I probably approach it the same way, you know. Uh, for us, the benefits of open source are tremendous, right? Um, that project is either going to live or it's going to die on the vine, right? So what, what immediate, you know, what better way to have some immediate feedback, uh, than to share it with the community and see if there, uh, is a following for it and, and that it's answering a need, uh, for a lot of people, right? Uh, if it's just something that is kind of, uh, you know, a simple add-on to something else, then uh, maybe it won't get that traction. But I think, you know, we, we really try to focus on, hey, what are the gaps out there? What are the pain points that a lot of customers mm-hmm. are uh, talking to us about? You know, those those conversations where you say, hey, I only wish it could do this. You know, when you start to get a bunch of signal on, on that, <laughs> you start to think like, hey, uh, there's probably a need for some type of functionality around this. You know, we're getting multiple signals from from different types of customers, et cetera. Uh, and then, yeah, then it's really about us trying to figure out uh, kind of hey, how, how are we going to create this and, and expose it to, to the community, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, no, I think um, what better way to either know, hey, this is something useful or this is something that uh, is not useful <laughs> than to share with the world and, and get some feedback. So definitely uh, you got to have thick skin uh, in the open source, <laughs> game, right? Because, and, and you, you really, uh, you know, a lot of the times, you know, a lot of the criticisms, you know, uh, you know, they can get you, but you know, the, the fact remains, there's just maybe some truth behind, you know, those criticisms too. And, and those need to be listened to as well. Yeah. That's a, that's a really important point. I think that, we're all learning when we're working in public and we're not just releasing something that is correct and right, because why would you be working in public if you uh, didn't want to learn from the community? Um, So Annie, I know you've participated in a bunch of community meetings um, as well as customer calls and uh, written a blog post. I'm wondering if you can kind of talk a little bit about the, the side of the product work that is this open source, that is this community, that's GitHub, et cetera, um, what you've learned about that? The biggest thing that sort of was interesting um, was just like the challenges of building features in open source versus product um, and being able to find um, that customer or the need, um, like Phil said, um, just sort of like rallying the community to really throw things out there um, and seeing if they not stick, but if they solve an actual problem. Um, And I think that was interesting to me where I think on more mature products or just traditional products, um, you have a very defined group of customers that have a very defined need. um, And it's easier to sort of figure that out. 
Whereas in open source, you have this huge community um, and everyone's using these pro um, projects for different use cases. And I think it's really interesting to kind of go out there, rally the community, um, and also sort of find the niche within the open source community that actually needs what you're building. Um, so yeah, I think that was the biggest thing that I learned um, from the open source community where, um, yeah, it's just how to rally the community to figure out um, if the problem you're solving is something that someone actually needs. And that's actually why we did release the blog post, just to invite discussion on multi-cluster um, and invite people to come talk about it with us and work on it with us um, so that we can figure out if it's a project that people solves a really big problem for people. And I know, uh, Phil, you have a, an agenda item on a forthcoming service mesh interface um, spec community call just about like, hey, what are some of these ways we're evolving the spec in the public? Um, can you talk a little bit about like uh, the the spec versus implementation um, and where you see the best places to uh, push changes, Phil? I think the spec is important, right? And, and I'm assuming we're talking about the service mesh interface spec. So the yep, SMI yep, spec, SMI. for those that aren't yep. familiar with it, right? We'll have and, a link uh, in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think what's cool about their project is there's no code. Like as far as like the spec is concerned, right? So we always get people like, well, where do I go download this? Where do I go? And uh, we have to clarify and say, no, this is this is kind of this agreed upon uh, specification of how this uh, APIs are to, to interact with things, right? And to me, that's totally core to a lot of things, right? Because if you can't agree at, at that point, <laughs> On, on kind of what APIs should, should make things, uh, you know, available or light up features, then uh, most likely any project tied to, uh, you know, spec is, is not going to fail. So uh, it's, it's, it's been a, you know, I, I wouldn't say challenging, but because again, we're trying to get this consensus of like this whole large community to, agree on uh, a lot of different things right and hey some some of those checklists they happen quick and uh, a, a lot don't happen as quick as we we want them to but uh but you know we're, we're listening to the community to kind of tell us hey where does this spec need to go and what are the most important things that need to be bubbled up uh for us to really uh enhance the the specification and uh and I just think it's it's just a, a, a good hygiene to have in, in any mm -hmm. open source project. When you talk about listening to the community, um, there's an interesting nuance there because as Annie alluded to earlier, not every member of the community needs multi-cluster service mesh. Um, Annie, you want to address that a little bit more? Just like what kind of applications or customers or end users are looking for something like a multi-cluster service mesh? Uh, yeah, you bring up a really interesting point um, because a really interesting thing that happened during my internship was um, in the beginning, I was exploring um, users who would need it and what the problem is. Um, and yeah, service mesh is a relatively new concept. Um, so some people are just beginning to use it, just beginning to explore how they can use a service mesh in their applications and finding the need for multi-cluster where um, someone would benefit from the scaling, the failover um, that was difficult at first um, because everyone, every user we talked to had um, relatively simple applications that they were just exploring how to use service mesh. Um, so, yeah, I think 
uh, Phil, do you want to talk a little bit about the more specific applications of it? Um, yeah, let, let me just just add to what you laid out there because I think you, you you nailed it right. And you know, we you know, Andy and I we we went into this and we were thinking, hey, everybody wants a multi cluster service mesh, right? Like, yeah, like that was course. our default. Like, and <laughs> and a lot of that uh, comes it, it stems from just the enterprise mind state, right? Hey, I got a very uh, critical application; it needs to be distributed. I'm using the service mesh, then obviously I need to have a service mesh that's distributed as well, right? So it, it comes from a good place. But I think what Annie and I found out in this, this journey is that um, the, need for multi the need for a multi-cluster service mesh was kind of directly tied to uh, your maturity with Kubernetes, mm. and what we found out is that, hey, if you're brand new to Kubernetes, uh, multi-cluster service mesh is probably so far away because, <laughs> hey, you, you've probably just refactored uh, some application that was running on the VM. You, you finally got it into a container, right? <laughs> you know, and now you just want to uh, expose it out, port 80, right? And then have people come shop at your, your website. Um, yeah. And then- We port 443 as well. Yeah, yeah, 443, <laughs> yeah. Make sure things are secure. Make sure you got your certs. Uh, and then I think from that, then you start building muscle. And I think probably the next step is, okay, how more apps can we onboard to the cluster? So I think, you know, again, the initial step is, hey, we're using Kubernetes. Oh, this is great. You know, all these built-in features, scaling, et cetera. Let's just add to the cluster. Let's let's just grow the cluster horizontally and onboard cluster. apps. Right, right. And and it's, it's funny. Like, I remember, I don't know, a year or so ago, I was reading about, like, the Alibaba cloud, like they have a, a cluster that had, I, I don't know, was it like a a million pods? Like, like just some astronomical number. I'm sure someone <laughs> will, will correct me, but I, I just know like the number of nodes and pods was just like insane, right? Uh, and so then you have that. But then again, now the enterprise is telling you, hey, uh, we need to have a region here in this location. We need to have another region there and we need to have these apps you know, distributed, you know, in case something happens, region goes offline or whatever the case may be. And by the way, we're using service mesh. And, and again, we, we're going to need that in these other locations. Um, not to mention, let me, let me just back up, not to mention that <laughs> some people don't even need or know that they need MTLS, right? So again, I, I made that example. Of, oh, they did just you, do you want to, I feel like we should gloss that for, for our listeners, uh, want to clarify what is mtls yeah yeah so this is this is kind of um i don't say it's a source of confusion but you know when we talk about it and people are like oh okay yeah maybe i do need that um so think about like how the world works today we, we talk about port 443 right so uh tls hey I, I go to my favorite shopping uh website uh there's a little lock there i know that hey if i put in my credit card info uh that channel is, is secured, right? So that's kind of a, uh, I wouldn't say one way, but it's just a one person has been basically uh, validated of who they are by some other source, right? And that's who gives you the certificate. And that's why you trust them where you can put your, your credit card in. Uh, when we talk about mutual TLS, right? So the, the M is, is mutual. So it's, it's TLS, same tech, but now what we're saying is, hey, 
not only am I trusting who you are, you're going to trust who I am too, right? So think about your favorite website that you shop at. Not only are you okay with putting your credit card and in, in the details in your browser, but what if they knew, hey, you're Phil Gibson and I trust you to even shop with me, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's where we get the MTLS. So uh, I've been through some iterations on that analogy. So hopefully that <laughs> resonates with <laughs> a bunch of people out yeah. there. If not, let me know. Give me some feedback and uh, we'll, we'll come up with a different one. That actually brings up an interesting question that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toss to Annie, which is there's an awful lot of acronyms, terminology. Um, the fact that Phil has very clearly pointed out not everyone needs multi-cluster service mesh, not everyone needs service mesh. Maybe you're just starting to need Kubernetes. Like as you layer all those pieces in, um, which ones do you think you're going to take, take back to school, talk to people about? Um, what I learned on my summer vacation is Kubernetes. Like which stuff do you think is going to resonate with everyone you're interacting with um, in a college, you know, computer science program? Yeah, I definitely think um, service mesh is, so new and so far out there. Um, I probably won't be bringing that one up that much, um, <laughs> especially multi-cluster specifically. Um, but yeah, I think Kubernetes is really interesting. Um, there's so many use cases. Um, yeah, and at school, we still use VMs um, for anything. I'm a cloud computing focus um, and we don't use Kubernetes. Um, and that's because Kubernetes, Kubernetes um, is a relatively new thing. It was developed uh, within the last five years. Um, so yeah, I think... Uh, I'll definitely be bringing that one back to school, um, telling my classmates about it. Um, and yeah, hopefully um, in the near future, it'll also get incorporated into some curriculum. Yes, that's so interesting to think about. Like, of course, everything in the academy, as it were, is going to uh, both be presaging everything we're doing in industry because it has innovative research, but then also lagging in that it's not that everyone can redevelop a curriculum on a dime and suddenly have a curriculum that incorporates everything that, you know, Phil blogged or talked about at a conference last month. It's not going to all make it into a curriculum for this fall. Like it just isn't. So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So what's the, how do we bridge the gap there? Like, do you get Phil to come in as a guest speaker for one of your classes and, you know, get him like telling some of the uh, cloud computing students about what's in their future? Like, how do we, how do we bridge that? Yeah, I think, um, like you said, um, the industry changes so often, so it's impossible to, you know, face um, each year's curriculum off of whatever new thing is going on at that moment. Um, But yeah, I do think that university does teach you um, the fundamentals to be able to go out there um, and learn about it. Um, So yeah, I have enough experience as a CS student um, to be able to come here this summer um, and get an understanding of what Kubernetes is, um, what service mesh is. But yeah, I think um, for college students, especially in their later years, to just be aware of um, what else is out there in the industry, um, going out there and doing internships like this um, just really helps inform them on what's in the industry. And then I think universities really for building those um, bottom line skills that really help you learn whatever it is you need to learn later on. Phil, I'm just kind of curious what you think, because I'm listening to Annie and thinking, you know what, we all hopefully are learning and should be learning and are trying new things all the time. Like, do you want to kind of 
as we wrap up here, kind of give us your perspective on you've been at Microsoft for a while. You obviously have not been focused on multi-cluster service mesh that entire time. Do you want to give us a little sense of the journey so people can imagine themselves following a journey like yours? Of like oh, which techs you focused on over time? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was just going to touch on something. So like, I'm, I really commend Annie, right? Because... You know, when we got uh, an intern, you know, I was chatting with uh, my boss, Lockie Evanson, if you know him. And so we were kind of going back and forth, like, okay, where can we insert the intern that kind of help us do things, right? And we 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 thought multi-cluster. <laughs> we thought, like, okay, do we want the intern <laughs> to have a fun experience here at Microsoft or not, right? Uh, Are we giving but, the intern the hardest project? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Let's, what's the <laughs> hardest thing that we're dealing with right now? Uh, and, and so, yeah, let's let's give it to the, the intern coming in. But no, I mean, uh, Annie's been awesome. Uh, and I think, you know, you can hear from what she's been talking about today. To, uh, and I think that's kind of evidence of uh, how really uh, motivated she was to kind of get in and kind of understand what this whole ecosystem is about and what is this whole feature set about. Uh, so, yeah, I hope, Annie, you, you kind of spread the word there uh, <laughs> with, with, <laughs> you go back to school. Uh, but, yeah, I, I guess, you know, back to me. Um, yeah, as far as my journey, um, you know, I would say, you know, if you are a technologist at heart, just just follow your, your passion. Right. I'm using passion again. Uh, for those that don't know, I mean, uh, I'm what's considered a boomerang here at Microsoft, meaning I, I left <laughs> and I came back. Uh, but I left and I went to work for Docker, and um, and I was at Microsoft and uh, was someone had mentioned containers. I didn't really know this is this is years ago. I was like, well, what is this whole thing about? Like, what's wrong with my my web apps, et cetera? <laughs> and uh, I went through like their tutorial. And then this light bulb came on. I was like, whoa, this, this is pretty slick, right? Uh, and then I kind of just devoted maybe the next portion of my, my life to understanding Docker and, and how, how this can solve a lot of issues for a lot of the enterprise customers at the time, right? Uh, so that was a great experience to, to be at Docker and then to come back to uh, Microsoft and kind of bring that experience and, and bring kind of what customers are, um, you know, what the, what the advantages are for them to, to be in a more cloud native uh, computing environment. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think if, if you're passionate about something, you know, go for it, you know, let that kind of drive uh, your, your avenue as far as where you want to take it. And, and, and then most importantly, no, uh, it's okay for you to be passionate about something, but then again, for open source, see how you can enhance it. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things a lot of people don't think of is uh, they'll come in, they'll, they'll consume Kubernetes, they'll consume all these other open source projects, but, uh, and they may have super intelligent ideas about things. And, uh, and when I say contribute, that doesn't mean, Hey, you, you're sitting down writing tons of lines of code, but uh, just an issue out there and say, Hey, how come it doesn't do this or, or that? And you'd be surprised how we would still call that a contribution to the community. Oh, yeah. Uh, and oh, then, absolutely. And then, you know, people who are, uh, have the time can, can pick something like that up and, and see if it's, it's worth it. 
I'm just, when I think of open source contributions, I think of how you, Phil, wrote some really long documentation um, uh, on the uh, Microsoft Docs site. And Annie came in and made a one-word PR that was literally just a clarification on the docs. And she thought, oh, should I put this in? This is one word. And I thought, you know what? This is an important clarification. Yes, you should absolutely put this pull request in and make this change. Like that can sometimes be the most valuable thing of all is removing a little bit of ambiguity or confusion. Yeah, and I I like how... There's been this uh, pivot or this this embrace of uh, people now being recognized as contributors who are just doing content, you know, and just having to be just well, making it possible yeah, for someone to use it. <laughs> yeah. No big deal. <laughs> uh, and, and not having to be, hey, I'm not this like, you know, 500 level Golang expert or, you know, et cetera. But uh, again, um, anytime that you can kind of uh, soften the ride of, of someone who's new to come in and, and maybe read a doc and, and get through it faster than someone who's got through it prior to them uh, is, is a good thing, right, for the, for the whole community. Okay, so I'm going to, I think since you're mentioning docs, I'll say, um, what things would you recommend people read, watch, look at, et cetera, to learn more about this? And, uh, and then same question, um, more about you and your work. Uh, well, we'll start with Phil. You know, I, I would say this. Um, just, you know, if you're into multi-cluster service mesh, look and see what's all out there, right? There's other service meshes that are deploying their kind of uh, way that they figure out uh, multi-cluster. I, I would say just get familiar with the terms and the functionality in general. And then, uh, you know, f- spin up every mesh that supports and just, you know, uh, co- comments on them, you know, uh, that would be my number one is again, just get familiar with, with the technology. And Annie, what would you recommend people look at so that they can learn as you've been learning? Um, yeah, I think like Phil said, um, the value of being in an open source community is the fact that everything is out there um, for you to learn about. Um, so yeah, definitely try all the other service meshes, um, see look at their documentation um, just to learn more about the ecosystem, what options people are offering, um, because that was definitely really valuable for me and my learning where I didn't just learn off the OSM docs. Um, I also got to learn off of all the other docs of all the other service mesh offerings that are out there. And Annie, if you want to, if people want to catch up with you, keep up with you, follow your work, et cetera, um, find out, you know, what rising juniors actually do and what rising (laughs) is that's incoming, right? They changed all yeah, the words incoming. since I was in school. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. Where can people keep up with you? Um, yeah. I think my Twitter is in the, in the bottom. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely follow me there. Um, and yeah, I got to start my Twitter um, based off of the work I've done on OSM and multi-cluster this summer. So hopefully I'll keep posting there. <laughs> Very exciting. All right. And how about you, Phil? Where can people uh, see more of your work or catch up with you? Yeah, yeah, you you might be able to find that on my Twitter handle. So at Philip Gibson, Philip Two L's, spelled the correct way. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll warn anyone going there: you're going to see a lot of uh, how to smoke barbecue. Um, so just just be prepared. You know, there's, there'll be some techie stuff, but uh, don't be surprised when you see uh, a couple of wrapped briskets uh, on, on my Twitter handle as well. 
<laughs> but surely that's a feature, not a bug. Yeah, yeah. That's it. <laughs> I want to thank uh, both of you for, for joining us. And uh, I want to tell our audience, head over to ArrestedDevOps.com slash multi-cluster service mesh for this episode's show notes. Visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash iTunes. Leave us a review in the iTunes store if you want to help other people find the podcast. Narrator, I don't know how that works. Um, we're also on Spotify and iHeartRadio if you're into those systems, which are apparently things. And uh, yeah, Annie, Philip, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for yeah, having thank us. Thank you for having us. Awesome. I'm Bridget at Bridget Kremho. This is Arrested DevOps. And remember, there's always DevOps in the banana stand. <laughs>